1: This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to The Coindesk Podcast Network.
2: Hello, it's The Hash on a Thursday. We are so happy that you are watching us on Coindesk TV and listening to us on The Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jen. We got Will over beside me, David on top, and Zach on a diagonal. Zach, you got our first story. What's going on?
1: Let's get diagonal with it, everybody. All right, we're talking about Coinbase and BlackRock. This is a pretty big one, actually, when it comes to the institutional crypto narrative. Coinbase has landed BlackRock as a customer. BlackRock is going to offer its clients access to Bitcoin right through Coinbase Prime. So this is actually quite interesting. We've obviously been hearing a lot of news out of BlackRock over the past year or so. There was a nice Ian Allison scoop earlier this year about something potentially along these lines coming to pass. We've seen Larry Fink, the BlackRock CEO, saying that client demand has made them take crypto a bit more seriously. And now we are seeing that they have gone, Coinbase, to make it all happen. Now, meanwhile, Coin is pumping on the news. CoinStock up significantly still a lot of juice in the institutional crypto narrative. Will, tossing it to you for your thoughts. What do you think? BlackRock enters the chat.
0: I wish this would have happened a few months ago. This would have added to the entire momentum we saw with the Bitcoin bull market. And now it's like, eh, we're in a bear market. No one cares anymore. Everyone's washed out. People are frustrated because their tokens are on Celsius or on Voyager, and they can't get them off and no one really cares about this. This is a huge deal though. This is up there with other news like Fidelity adding Bitcoin to their 401k. This is up there with MicroStrategy adding Bitcoin to their treasury. This is up there with any sort of announcement. The fact that this asset manager with $9 trillion, $9 trillion of assets under management is getting into this game is phenomenal. And huge. Another point that I want to add on to this is it's funny that Coinbase is pumping right now, right after a bunch of people dumped on them, right? Uh, Kathy Woods Ark Invest Fund just dumped this is my favorite part of the story. Stock, basically, at the bottom, right? They dumped right at the bottom, and now is up only, right? So hilarious to see that happen. Last point on this is BlackRock getting involved is just perfect for the uh, black helicopter Bitcoin maximalists out there who hate. Coinbase and they hate BlackRock. This just fits so well with their narrative that Coinbase is against Bitcoin and that BlackRock is out to get everybody. So it's sort of like a perfect merge of so many different conversations. I really love this headline. Uh, David, I'm going to throw it up to you though.
3: Yeah, I agree with Will almost entirely. This is definitely big. I mean, it's a little bit tempting to act as if this was inevitable that there would be some kind of connection like this at scale. Obviously, BlackRock is uniquely huge. And so Who knows what will happen? The one sort of caveat here, which is just a question mark for me, I don't have answers. It's important to keep in mind that the fact that there is infrastructure here for these trades doesn't change certain regulatory obligations that many of BlackRock's clients will have that still will block them from, let's say, investing a pension fund into Bitcoin or something like that. We don't know entirely how that's going to play out, but it's important for people to keep in mind that this doesn't mean $9 trillion is immediately free to, you know, go 1% into crypto or, or whatever. This is the technical infrastructure. That's not the same thing as opening up the regulatory floodgates. So things like ETFs are still going to have their place. This doesn't eliminate all those roadblocks. I saw Jen.
2: Yeah, I'm just going to ride Will's excitement. When BlackRock announced that they were looking at different ways to offer digital assets to their clients a few months ago, I said the same thing. But since then, the market has gotten worse. We've had the Terra Luna contagion and catastrophe. And the fact that this is still moving forward and that institutional investors are still looking for ways to get their toes wet when it comes to digital assets is really, really exciting. And I think it's very bullish news in a bear market. So I'm just ride in that positivity mm-hmm. wave
3: i think i agree with jen more than will i think the timing on this is better than it would have been if it had happened
1: three or four months ago because yeah like
3: you institutions
1: can be slow but they
3: mean it when they make a decision i guess
1: you know and plus like, if you look at it through the lens of blackrock responding to client demand potentially some pretty savvy clients some of these mm-hmm. clients may see this as a buying opportunity not to be the bitcoin hope guy, but Hey, buy low, sell high. Bedrock wow. of what these folks are thinking. <laughs> uh-huh. So, buy low, mm, That was so good. That was so good. All right, that, that was, was like a opium. Good. Pep, Someone clip a The that. Uh, opium like the Wotac. <laughs> with like the, okay, anyway, all right, let's change. Gears. Who's got the next <laughs> yeah. story? What are we? What are we talking about next? I got Take you. it away. I got you.
0: Okay, we're going back to Robin. we talked about Robinhood yesterday with their note from the CEO. They laid off 23 percent of their workforce, which is pretty startling. About 700 plus people. But now they're stepping back and clapping back at the market saying, no, we are not going to be bought out by anybody. We actually have a lot of dough to go make some M&A purchases ourselves. Vlad Tenev, the CEO of Robinhood itself, said that, I love us a standalone company Tenev noted that Robinhood has about $6 billion of cash that could be used for acquisitions. And the company sees opportunities in the current environment to make acquisitions. In April, Robinhood said it was buying UK crypto platform. Zigloo. $6 billion is a lot of money. It's a lot of money to go out there. Their market cap is actually around $9 billion. So if you look at it, like they're in a very healthy position, which makes me wonder about the layoffs yesterday that they said they can go make an M&A purchase after doing these layoffs. But you know, if they're going to do what they're going to do, Jen, I'll throw it to you.
2: Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. It feels almost insensitive to say like, hey, we have $6 billion to do whatever we want with after laying off 23% of the labor force. I understand there are different buckets of money that are for different business functions. But I can only imagine employees who didn't get laid off sitting there and like Joe and Mary from their team no longer have a job. And they're hearing this communications from their CEO in public saying, we got all this money. We're not worried about anyone coming and taking over the company. Feels insensitive. And it makes me question and wonder about the internal communications that are happening at Robinhood. But David, I think I saw your hand go up.
3: Yeah, it's not Robinhood that's out of order. The whole damn system is out of order. Like The reason you cut jobs at this moment is because you're not getting organic growth and and you're not going to for a while. I wouldn't read this as any particular problem with Robinhood. They're deciding that they're not going to be able to grow on their own terms for a little while. So they're going out and doing acquisitions to grow their customer base based on work that other people have already done because they do have cash. So I mean, obviously it's not great and it would have been better if they had had more one way to I mean, you essentially hire people for where you want to be six months from now. And so, you know, they they similar to Coinbase, they got out over their skis in terms of their growth trajectory. And, you know, this makes sense operationally, even if it feels really bad for the people who got cut or had friends get cut. But my only comment would just be
2: David. The messaging.
3: Well, the messaging (laughs) is what it is, but even there, though, I will, I will continue to say that like, the messaging is for stockholders and for Wall Street. It's not for customers or honestly, even employees. They're trying to look good for the stock market more than anything, and that's their goal here. Zach, you're nodding along.
1: Not along. I mean, you know, we, got, we got Vlad. We got uh, an emerging tech CEO that can either be lionized or villainized, and you know, the tech press loves doing that. But I think to the broader point about messaging, this does not look good. You just laid off a lot of people and you're like, hey, no, we're good. We can acquire. We're healthy. We're, I love us as a standalone company. We just axe the quarter of the company, but I still love us. The three quarters that are left, love us as a standalone company. We got plenty <laughs> of money. That does sound not great. But Will, you probably have something smarter to say. So I'm tossing it down to you. Maybe.
0: No, I just like what David said. So I'm going to riff on it a little bit more. I think when you look at it from a larger perspective, it is about Wall Street, right? You had to lay off these employees, but to Wall Street, that might even be a good signal that you're willing to make those tough conversations happen and willing to lay off those folks just to make your company more efficient. And then on top of that, defending yourself and being like, hey, no, we're not open to be acquired. We are a functioning business. We're going to keep moving forward. We're going to do what we can in this macro environment and deal with the stresses we have. That's a good signal to Wall Street. Uh, That's a good signal Mm -hmm. to anyone who wants to go buy that stock out there, whether retail or institutional, and be like, this company has strong leadership. They're willing to make the tough choices and plow ahead. I was a former employee at Robinhood. Yeah, I'd be pretty pissed. But that's just the way Mm -hmm. that capitalism works in a lot of senses. So that's how it is.
3: This is deep, weird tech stuff. And we're going to do our best to describe it concisely doing my favorite kind of crypto story, which is a crypto story that makes no sense whatsoever. As you have probably heard, if you're watching this show, Ethereum is about to undergo a major upgrade known as the Merge that will transition the uh, EVM infrastructure to a proof-of-stake-based security system. It will cut energy use by 95% because nobody will be able to mine that chain using proof-of-work, which is the energy-intensive security system for Bitcoin and other chains. But obviously, miners who have been making money off of Ethereum for many years now uh, are not super happy about losing this uh, revenue. And so they are, a certain portion of them are proposing to continue mining the proof of work chain. I wrote a piece yesterday morning that describes some of the challenges there. And it also parallels sort of some other forks that we've seen in the past, like ETH Classic, uh, Bitcoin Cash, and BSV, arguably. These forks happen. And, uh, you know, generally there's a big loss of economic value in people who bet on the weaker chain, but we'll see how it goes this time. Will, I think you are the person I want to hear from first on this.
0: Yeah, just fork it and everything will go right. This is a pretty interesting case of going back to 2017, 2018, the BCH and BTC hard fork where we saw BCH move along, decided we want to have this different protocol parameter involved with our network. And so we're going to move away from Bitcoin. Now we're rerunning it for Ethereum, which has been obviously moving towards proof of stake ecosystem for many years, like since the beginning of Ethereum 2014, 2015. This was within the design parameters with the Ethereum founders, within the Ethereum devs all along these years, people knew about it. And they have just been waiting for the day for this to happen. Mm -hmm. Now at the last minute, miners are taking this seriously. And they're like, well, we want to continue mining, we want to continue getting these rewards, and it's been extremely profitable to mine Ethereum, and so they want to continue that. Their plan, though, is just to fork the network, make two different versions of Ethereum, Ethereum Proof of Stake, Ethereum Proof of Work. They're hoping that Ethereum Proof of Work can survive in some semblance of what it is right now, because dApps or applications built on top of Ethereum will choose to stay on the Proof of Work chain for whatever reason. It seems very unlikely this would happen, most apps have already signaled that they plan to stick with Ethereum proof of stake. It doesn't seem to be like a lot of infrastructural needs to be able to change from proof of work to proof of stake for applications themselves. And if you look at the economic value, it's all going to be on proof of stake. Think of stable coins, it's all going to be on proof of stake. Think of DeFi applications, all going to be on proof of stake. NFTs, same thing. All that's going to move to the proof of stake Ethereum platform. This proof of work platform is basically going to have an ETH token, ETH POW, And that token value will be 100% based on if people want to trade it or not. We already saw Poloniex has already jumped on that bandwagon. Justin Soon this morning, I think it was yesterday, tweeted that Poloniex has 1 million ETH that they're willing to use towards the POW community in some semblance, like a donation, maybe of like a small percentage, in order to lift Mm -hmm. up the POW community. To me, that just signals Poloniex is in the right spot to make some money off of some very, very poor investor traders out there. And they're going to scoop up that money if they can. I expect to see more of this going into the merge as we get closer to that deadline. I think there's going to be more exchanges that list ETHPOW and there's going to be a lot of people who lose a lot of money just by thinking that ETHPOW is a project that could succeed in the future.
2: I have a question for David. In the article (laughs) you wrote that if this goes forward, it would trigger a wave of truly bonkers speculative trading as people try to profit from the free tokens. Please explain to me what you mean.
3: Right. So this is an important part of the game plan here for the people promoting this, which is everybody who owns tokens on Ethereum today, after the merge, will have tokens on both Ethereum and the proof of work chain that they're going to call EthPAL. And that means that there are a lot of complicated decisions to be made for people who are holders just kind of automatically. With any chain split, you in some sense, get free money, and that's going to drive people insane. And the hope, I think, or at least the promise, is that ETHPOW will become a real thing. That's what they're trying to get people to believe. I'll put it that way. So that's where the speculative trading comes in, is that there's going to be forces pushing the ETHPOW token down because You know, people like Will are just haters and skeptics and uh, think that this is all a sham. I'm not saying these are my words, but, uh, you know, some people believe it. So there will be forces pushing that price down, but that then also creates an opportunity for people who, for whatever reason, might believe that longer term the value will go up. So there will be, after the merge, a period of extreme chop in this market for the ETH POW tokens. Mm -hmm. And the smartest people will be the ones making the money people trading at size frankly will be the ones making the money these are my words retail should be extremely cautious i was going to say it sounds question?
2: sounds like a yeah like a beware we may see new retail people come into the mix out of fomo trying to make a quick buck and then they get wrecked so don't do that
1: yeah Zach? to so the broader point i think just again the new economic landscape for the ethereum ecosystem that could get really strange but also some interesting game theory kind of going on behind the scenes right so the ethereum foundation and other core devs are saying like hey we're not committing to you know an exact date for the merge because we don't want any potentially bad actors to like do stuff that could compromise that transition right you have this huge constituency miners who are about to have a bunch of expensive bricks on their hands and it's unclear whether or not they're going to fully participate in supporting this transition to, yeah. to the stake there's been some, you know, and Will has wrote about this extensively, actually, there's been some peace offerings to them to try to get them to participate and to move along, make forward progress to this transition. But what happens up until that moment where it switches from proof of work to proof of stake is still a bit unclear. So some of the messaging is intentionally vague so as to sort of mitigate some of the game theoretical things that could go poorly here. So that to me, is also really interesting as we move closer and closer to this expected switchover, whether that's in late September. Early October. Who knows? We'll see. Will, over to you. Yeah, I'll give one more thought on this subject
0: while we're still here.
1: And that's about a Bitnext
0: research piece that was put out yesterday, two days ago, I think, talking about what could happen in a trading scenario for ETH POW and how everyone is basically going to be taking their ETH POW tokens. Remember, you're going to get your ETH POS token, your ETH POW token. And people with ETH POW tokens are going to be trying to run towards a door and get out with as much cash as possible. So, to David's point, you've mm-hmm talked about this in the article and you talked about it just a second ago, like everyone's going to try to trade this event. And what's going to happen more than likely is that everyone who's very, very good at trading on a technical level, they know how to run an Ethereum node. They know what MEV is. They know how to front run. They know how to program their own transaction. Those people are going to be the ones who win. Everyone else is going Mm -hmm. to be trying to like, trade or swap their ETH POW tokens, whatever token they have on this other copy version of the Ethereum network. And they're going to try to get that money out. They're not going to get any money though. It's just going to be like a complete failure of, of getting anything out the door. You're not going to be able to do it in time. It's just how it's going to be. I'm really interested to see that actually occur because there's not really going to be like necessarily any losses, right? Because you basically just got a copy version of your token holdings and you're trying to make cash on top of it what's going to happen is we're going to see like the people who are rich and technical already, they're going to get more rich and more technical because they're going to have this experience mm-hmm. with the transition at the fork.
3: You have to be running your own Ethereum node to do this ETH pal trade. And that's just one of the intensely complicated technical elements that would have been a barrier, except that now that it's all going to be listed on centralized exchanges, that doesn't necessarily even the playing field. It might even just make for more retail victims. but. The second thing I was going to say, Will, you can't lose any money on this unless you spend dollars on ETHPAL after the merge. So that's <laughs> the one way you can will. actually lose money. And they I'm sorry, Jen, just go either. for
2: it. It's okay. We're going to take a little vacation, a little trip right on over to DTravel. So DTravel spent a few months reworking their user experience for their Web3 vacation platform, and they've just completed the first smart contract vacation rental booking. So dTravel is similar to Airbnb, but for Web3, the platform aims to give autonomy to renters and hosts, allowing hosts to have ownership over their bookings, transactions, and payment options. Will, I'm tossing this to you first. Do hosts who have vacation rentals want more ownership? Do you think that this is going to take off?
0: I mean, I I don't get how you're going to have more ownership than actually physically owning the property with contracts. (laughs) Like you can cancel your deal with Airbnb whenever you want, right? You don't have to be an Airbnb host if you don't want to be. So when this was announced with Binance, like I just thought it was a total gimmick. To me, it seemed like Binance was trying to get equity deals in something outside of crypto. And so that's why they invested in something with real estate. And it's very common when you see these larger projects, they have huge amounts of assets under management. They have tons of money, they don't know where to put it. And so they start moving it into adjacent fields, or they start moving into fields that just make sense so that their baseline growth continues to be very steady. So you can move from like this very volatile startup growth to more steady stream income. So when they made this announcement, I think it was like a year or so ago that they're investing in travel and the whole package. That's how I saw it. To me, I don't see a lot of benefit from a project like this. The only thing that was interesting was being able to pay with like USDC I think that's something that's going to be more and more prevalent in the next Mm -hmm. five to 10 years is the ability to pay straight from my iPhone with a stable coin and doesn't have to go through hoops and jumps moving from a bank account to a bank account and settling in over three days. If I can just pay immediately with USDC, that's going to be very nice in the future. Besides that, like a Web3 hotel or Airbnb is just like, come on, please, Zach, to you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the elimination of some of the platform fees, sure, that's nice. I think you're right. That's not going to be the deal breaker. But the idea of stablecoin payments in international travel, which is sort of necessarily cross-border, that is potentially really interesting. Mm -hmm. It is potentially something that some of these bigger firms could integrate one day, right? If you go to the Ubers of the world on the back end, it costs a bunch of money to have accounts all over the world in all the geographies in which you operate. And I think the promise of stablecoin payments for someone who's willing to take that leap operationally, is that you can avoid some of that headache when it comes to operationalizing global organizations, right? So if this is the canary in a coal mine, a test case that someone in an innovation department of a big multinational company sees and says, hmm, maybe there is something we could do here that integrates the benefits of, you know, stable coins settled on blockchains instead of in all these different, you know, banks around the world. Maybe there's something that we could do at scale that suits us. But that's all TBD and who knows. I saw Jen first and then David.
2: Yeah, there's also a DAO element here with a travel token. And so the platform says that there's this token and homeowners and renters can vote on proposals like marketing features and hosting tools. I don't know how involved people want to be in a platform like this. I feel like people who want a vacation home just want a vacation home. They want a nice experience when they go. And people who own the vacation home want to be able to rent it out in a seamless way. What I do think is interesting, though, is they said that these changes were made due to user feedback. I wonder how many users they had that were giving feedback, but these users said that they wanted more ownership over the terms of the contract. And it made me think about, I mean, as a producer, we've tried to rent out Airbnbs as an example to use in film and television production. And that's a term that Airbnb doesn't support. So even if a host on the platform wants to rent their property out for this, they can't do it via the platform. And then they miss out on, you know, the payment services and the insurance services so I can see in a situation like that, if someone uh, wanted to set their own terms, but you know have an easy uh, payment service, have an easy place for people to leave reviews, I can see it working there. David, up to you.
3: Yeah. So I'm glad you brought up the topic of a DAO because that does seem interesting, at least if you have you know people who are, let's say, the property owners themselves and managers themselves who are then running like a decentralized payments system for themselves. But I get really nervous when it is ultimately a centralized company called DTravel that is setting up this supposedly decentralized system. There's also a really significant operational barrier here, which is, you know, if you're running a platform for, you know, a two-sided market for rentals or anything else, you have to have a reputation system and you have to have an identity system. So that, for example, you know, somebody who's renting their property is going to know if the person they're renting to, like last week, burned down somebody else's house, right? And setting those rules and having a system for enforcing them and keeping them honest is difficult at the best of times. And having it run by a DAO seems very, very challenging, potentially useful and interesting, but challenging. And then finally, I, I have to question the language here. What are we talking about when we talk about ownership over the contract, right? Ownership takes place within a legal regime. Ownership doesn't mean anything if you are not physically in control of something or have a robust legal system backing you up. And if you're talking about an international system where you're, you have a physical asset over here and a blockchain over here, like that's not ownership. Those two things don't entirely go together, at least not yet. And so you have to be very careful when you hear terms like this thrown around. There's a big gap between what's happening on chain and what's happening in the real world. And you can't let people gloss over that difference.
1: Peer to peer internet commerce, it's the dream. We're getting there. All right. Mm. We're taking a break, a 23 hour, 30 minute break, because that's the end of the show today. You've been watching The Hash. I'm Zach Seward. We have Will Foxley, David Morris, and Jensen Assey with us today. We will be back tomorrow. We're glad you're here. If you're watching us, that's great. Also, podcast is really awesome. Check us out if you want to listen to us on the go. Coindesk Podcast Network is where you can find The Hash for your ears. All right, that's it. Have a great Thursday. We'll see you tomorrow. Good to see you, Zach. It's good to be back. Love to see you all here as well. We'll talk soon. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network.